This is Tommy's Outdoors 108. Communication. It is one of the most important yet most difficult things we do in life. And that's no different when we communicate about nature, about hunting and fishing, about rewilding, about nature conservation. So how to communicate properly? What are the pitfalls? So to answer those questions, it is my great pleasure to bring you today my conversation with communications professional and wildlife storyteller, Lucy McRobert. We discussed communication techniques, what are the pitfalls in communication, why sometimes people after receiving our message are more confused than before, and what it means, why would they not getting the message. We also spend some time talking about social media. On social media, we are all communicators, like it or not. So how to communicate on social media, how to deal with negativity, and what are the certain things we do that may actually be counterproductive to the things we want to communicate. Finally, we discussed catering to certain types of audiences. This is especially important for NGOs. What are the good, the bad, and the ugly when we targeting certain types of audience with our communication? I am sure you will enjoy this episode of the podcast, but before I let you do this, Here's a big ask for you, especially for my listeners in the UK who are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or formerly iTunes. Get in there and leave five-star rating. And if you want to go an extra mile, please leave the review. This is a great help for me and for the podcast. And for all the rest of you, if you want to help me out to sit long hours editing those episodes, now you can buy me a coffee buymeacoffee.com slash tommysoutdoors. The link is in the description of the show. Get in there and buy me a coffee or two. That's a great help while I'm working on those episodes. And now, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, communication about nature with Lucy McRobert. Lucy, Hello. welcome to the show. Welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. <laughs> Hello, lovely to be here. Ah, yes, yes. I'm excited for our conversation today. Um, <laughs> Lucy, um, you are a wildlife storyteller and yes. communicator. So yes. for the benefit of, of, of listeners, how does a day in the life of the wildlife storyteller looks like? Well, at the moment, it's rather relaxed because I'm on the Isles of Silly. Um, which is uh, where we spend most of our time. We spend about seven or eight months of the year here, and it's a slightly different lifestyle, so it's pretty chill. Um, essentially, I went to university and did a degree in history. About halfway through, realized I really hated history and was quite bad at it. <laughs> um, really, really terrible at it. Um, so I specialized in environmental history, which was absolutely incredible and really opened my eyes to stories that I didn't know but also reignited this love of nature that I remember having as a kid and I lost it because yay teenagerhood etc um after I'd done that I got really into the idea of working in, in the wildlife sector so whether that was for an NGO or um whether that was as a writer or whatever I, I really got into that but 
most of all, I realised that there was no space for young people to actually meet and chat and talk at this stage. This would have been, what, 10, 11 years ago now when I left uni. And I was really surprised that the there didn't seem to be a, a forum, if you like, for discussion amongst young people of wildlife issues. Um, obviously, that has come a hugely long way in the past decade, like an incredible distance in the past decade in reality, uh, partly because of social media, partly because of like global wide campaigns. Uh, but at that time, I helped co-found an organisation that was specifically for young people who cared about wildlife called A Focus on Nature. And that oh. was great. Uh, from there, I have worked with the Wildlife Trust for five years um, before I got pregnant and had a baby. Um, I've worked in education at the Rutland Osprey Project. I was the researcher on Tony Juniper's book, What Nature Does for Britain. Um, and basically, since having my little girl realised that the pressures of the NGO sector, the expectations, if you want to progress in your career, etc., which is not conducive to young mum lifestyle, and felt that I could make more of a difference in the wildlife conservation world by going freelance, which is okay. essentially now why I am a wildlife storyteller. I work across a range of platforms, a range of mediums, um, some of which are things like social media, magazine editorial. I work uh, with a variety of organisations on their campaigns, some of which I'm really passionate about and some of which I view far more transactionally because I'm professional and they're my job. So there's a whole range of different things that I do, but all of them come under the idea essentially of loving, celebrating and sharing wildlife adventures. Yeah. And you're and you're not label yourself as a campaigner or activist, right? You're no. like, do you feel like this is this has a, a bad rap in a certain uh you know circles because there's a lot of people who's like i'm a campaigner i'm an activist i'm this and that and you you take part in campaigns right you're you're actively involved in in some campaigns and one would argue that there is a, this this activism for nature and and uh -huh. showing people why do you choose more kind of um um let's say modest name like, i'm a storyteller yeah, i'll go with that um so I think where my skill set lies is I'm very good at planning campaigns. I'm very good at helping organizations um, come up with successful campaigns, understanding audiences, etc. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm just a little bit too esoteric to ever really nail myself to a mast over something. I, I like seeing nuance. I like seeing gray areas. I like talking about things and having conversation. I love listening to what someone else is saying and really understanding the crux of their argument. And I think there are very few issues in the world that can be boiled down to this kind of idea of right or wrong. If I was going to get really actively involved in campaigns and anything, it would probably be more social issues, actually. Um, so kind of Uh, female agenda and um, following on from like the Me Too movement, I'm actually far more probably activist in those areas than I would be about environmental issues because I just think they're too nuanced. And although there have been some very successful campaigns um, in the past, I think there are comparatively few really successful campaigns in the past that have come from a position of activism. Uh, the people I admire the most who work in the conservation sector Um, who have been very successful in their own campaigns have tended to do it through a more nuanced way, through a, a more listening, collaborative approach. People like um, Joan Edwards, who works for the Wildlife Trust, her 
influence in the marine conservation area has been absolutely enormous but at no point do you ever really see her outside screaming at politicians etc so I've always really admired their way of doing things and I like collaboration I like finding solutions to a whole range of things I, I, I drives my husband absolutely insane um <laughs> it's like it's those kind of things that I really enjoy I I'm less enthralled by activism because deep down I'm not very troublemakery. I'm very bad at being a troublemaker. Um, lots of people think I am and I'm actually really bad at it. Um, I don't like confrontation. I don't like arguments. If I ever get into them, I've probably had a drink. Um, I, <laughs> looking at some of my 11 o'clock in the morning arguments on Twitter, I haven't drank at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I, I do actually try and avoid them quite actively, to be honest, because I don't find they make me happy. I find they make me anxious. I find they make me stressed. And when I look at the bigger picture of life, I don't want to feel like that. And I find finding solutions makes me happy. So that's the route that I go down. I, I can't I can't agree more. Uh, and and you're also saying that you're a communicator. And I think that's a huge thing in communication to to see the like you said, to see the other side, because then <laughs> you can work out a solution together rather than go heavy-handed it's like ban this and do this and do that and yeah. and then there's always a side that that you island alienating straight away so hey what's you know who are these people coming here tell us what you do and, and you're and you're right a lot of that it boils down to hear the other side and and find out the the, the right <laughs> right solution so that's that communication part that i think it's it's um extremely important you also say that you like to tell the inspiring stories the positive uh -huh. stories about the nature and i would like to ask you how do you find balance and what is your um approach to telling positive and good stories versus uh -huh. you know doom and gloom conversations like and i had these a lot of these conversations and i even spoke with one of the um, people, one of the uh, NGOs, uh, one of a member of NGOs on the, on the, on, in Ireland, and he said something like, "Well, I I heard that people don't like to see this this old negative stories, and I tried for two years, and it didn't make a damn difference. So I'm back to my old ways. Uh -huh. And the old ways is like, you know, you wake up in the morning, Saturday morning." beautiful day, sun shining, birds are chirping, you've relaxed, and then you're making big mistake. You open Twitter, <laughs> right? And there's like, <laughs> okay. this goes extinct, that goes extinct, the habitat destroyed here, and the, and the Amazon rainforest, don't even ask about it, and this shark <laughs> is no more. It's like, oh, damn it, not on the Saturday morning. <laughs> so so how would you, how would you as a professional communicator, uh -huh. like how you deal with, with balancing? Because on the other hand, you don't want to make an impression that everything is beautiful yeah. and everything is perfect. How to balance that? I think it is always, first of all, it's about looking at who you're talking to. And I mean, I've noticed this a lot more on the infamous Twitter recently, which has just become quite a scary place at times, actually, which is the how do you people say things and they tweet something perfectly innocent and that's really kind of proactive and happy and immediately you have 10 people who you don't know shouting at you and you're going how did you even find me like what are you following so that I even appeared on your Twitter feed oh shush Some, someone um, who follows you liked their tweet and yeah. that's <laughs> like, oh, oh, what is, who's this person I'm gonna oh. show him 
I really hate since Twitter have done this. It makes me so cross. Um, <laughs> just exposes you to so much more. Um, for me, finding the balance between the, the what we call love and loss is a very difficult thing because the two go hand in hand. You often don't get genuine love and emotion, the emotion of love, unless you have experienced loss. And that's basically human psychology. Uh, that you can apply that to nature, you can apply that to possessions, you can apply that to personal relationships. So those two things really do go hand in hand. Um, so telling that story is very important. Um, it's really cheesy the David Attenborough line about people won't protect what they don't love and what they haven't seen, and I agree with that to a certain extent. Um, but I do think there's a, a lot of pressure put on us to tell stories in a certain way. Classic one is the media and the way that media structures their news cycles. So the media only wants happy environmental stories because of where they fit within the news cycle. Um, and if it's not a happy story, then they're not going to run it because they're competing with Brexit and they're competing with shortages and crises and various other things that are going wrong and global pandemics. So they don't want environmental stories that fit with that. They want environmental stories that show the other side of life, which is great. On the one hand, I believe that I want that media space to be taken up by wildlife. I want those stories getting out there. So play that game to a certain extent. But on the other side of it, there is this loss going on. There is this downward trend that it's very hard to communicate. One of the reasons why climate change is not discussed by a certain generation of people as openly as it should be is because in the 1980s, it was labeled as global warming which was completely contradictory to what they were being told. They were told the earth was warming up, but the weather was getting colder. So that simply did not compute. And now trying to move that narrative away from global warming into climate change or climate crisis is incredibly difficult. So that balancing constantly is, it's exhausting. Um, it's difficult, but I always believe it comes down to who you're talking to. I am not a scientist. I am not an ecologist. Um, in any way, shape or form, I do not have a qualification in science more than double award GCSE. That's how bad my school was. Um, I don't have an A-level. I don't have any kind of like any kind of uh, degree in it or anything like that. So I always say that the kind of people that I'm talking to are the people like me, um, the people whose ecological understanding isn't amazing. I'm talking to people who... You're very modest have. given the, the, the profile and, and appreciation you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just honest. Like, I, I don't have that ecological grounding. And I think it's really important that we communicate nature in a way that we don't expect people to have that ecological grounding. And I think if you just keep telling them that things are going downhill, but then they look out their window and that's contradicted by what they see in their garden, you're not going to get anywhere because you're telling two contradictory stories someone you can say well house sparrow populations are declining and they look out their window and all they see is house sparrows that it's simply not going to go in psychologically they cannot deal with that so people won't deal with it so to me just telling the lost story quite often is contradictory to what people are seeing with their own eyes and the moment you try and contradict someone's personal values or their personal experience of the world it just goes out the window You have lost that conversation no matter how many statistics, scientific reports, academic reports, news articles you give them, they're gone because they are fundamentally not going to believe what you are saying, even if they nod and smile. So you have to tell 
the good stories as well. You have to tell the happy things. Where the line comes for me is where it tips over into saying the happy stories are the whole story. And a classic example of that is the Tory party conference a few weeks ago and Boris's built back beaver kind of claiming that he was responsible in some way for bringing beavers back. And this was a Tory party initiative. Everyone's going, I don't think that's actually what happened there, but okay, fine. Um, and saying that, oh, well, we bought back beavers and therefore big tick, we've ticked that box and the environment's going to be great again. Because, beavers sorted. Yeah, we've got our beavers and therefore environmentally we are back on track. Um, so that's, that to me is the line, is that the good story becomes the only story. You have to find ways of telling the bad stories, um, but you're never going to be able to tell the bad stories if people aren't listening to you and people will stop listening to you if all they hear is bad news. And you think about it with your friends, you think about it with your personal relationships. If there's one killjoy in the room who's always being a negative Nelly, you kind of stop inviting them to the pub after a while. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it is yeah, difficult. It is so difficult. So for me, it is about finding the inspiring stories. And those are often not just about wildlife. They're about people. It's about the people doing amazing things because they are people that then others can aspire to be like. And even if they can't imagine wildlife in a situation, they can say, well, I can do that. Or my kid could do that. Or oh, my friends like that. That's amazing. And I trust them. And therefore, if I trust them, I'm more likely to change my behavior. So I think inspiring stories are often the people-centered stories rather than just the wildlife ones. That's very interesting because inspiring stories are also positive in a way. And at the same time, you can you can showcase the other side as well. There are positive mm -hmm. people doing these things because, well, something is not that 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 great. And you know, the point that you made that I really like, I haven't heard that before, is that people will the contradictory bit that the mm. people who see the good things and then you're like, oh, which is which also resonated with me because when you you know, I for example know a lot of people who see the negative side. Right. Like, for example, anglers who see the decline in fish and decline in catches over over years. Right. These mm -hmm. these are people that, again, there's no point telling them great stories like, oh, the girl fish are leaping out of the water because they know. So it's a very interesting. point. I knew I'm going to learn something. I knew I'm going <laughs> to learn something. It's, fant it's fantastic. Um, and, it, you know, it's interesting to me because I also like in this podcast and in Tommy's Outdoors, I'm doing this communication and, and trying to, you know, in my own ways, uh, reach out to people and and um introduce them to new ones which mm -hmm. is which is so important but really you know how the things going overall in nature mm -hmm. and especially as a as a young mother are you are you like have this eco anxiety you know i heard like many times like oh my god i'm so worried about the future of my son the future mm -hmm. of my daughter like is is this something is this a real thing i think eco anxiety is a real thing i protect myself from it um, by the bowing out of Twitter conversations and arguments, by understanding, because I, I basically I'm trained in social media, so I've been on enough courses to know how to mute conversations and how to mute functions and how to not follow things that I don't want to. So I'm very good at protecting my own mental health in that respect. But I do think it is a real thing. Um, and I'm not sure how helpful it is. It, again, it depends on your personality. Anxiety reactions can be really big motivators for some people. 
some people really thrive under those high stress environments and are really motivated when to take action, take positive action out of an anxiety situation. Um, other people become paralyzed, become crippled and shut down. And there's a whole range of people in the middle of that spectrum as well. And so I think eco-anxiety is very real, especially for young people. Um, every generation has whatever they're dealing with. And I think eco-anxiety is going to be a big one for the next generation coming through. Um, partly because if I think back to my own childhood, the only form of news that my family got was through watching the news or reading the newspapers. So if my parents didn't want me to see something, it was really easy to block me away from that. They just took the newspaper off the table and we watched The Simpsons instead. Um, it wasn't like, it, it was really easy to shelter me um, in the 90s from this negative news. Um, I think now with kids having so much more freedom and access to information online, even if they're not getting it one-on-one -on -one online, they're getting it from their mates who are getting it online, yeah. that they're lacking the understanding that their parents aren't necessarily teaching them, putting these things in context. They're just getting little snippets of soundbite, clickbait, negative information. And it's that that's causing the anxiety because it's not paired with personal action. It's not paired with the inspiring stuff. And at that point, I think you're into a really negative cycle where if you don't have all the information and no one ever does, but if you don't certainly have all the information available to you, you can construct things in your head that are overwhelming um, are oppressive um, and that can trigger really, really negative reactions in you. And that ultimately is not a good place for anyone to be in. So I have never suffered from eco-anxiety, but I know people that have have, and I know that it has been crippling to them. And it's not something I would want for my own child. But at the same time, I also want her to grow up being mindful, self-aware, unaware of the challenges that the planet faces and all I can do with that is balance those negative truths the honesty with the positive things and how she can make a difference and what the impacts of her decisions are and from the age of three we're starting that we're starting to give her personal choices by explaining the impacts of her personal choices and she's three quite often she'll still want the plastic barbie doll don't know where she gets it from because it's not me I'm not into princess dresses she bloody loves them <laughs> and it's about her understanding the impacts of that and we try to do that by taking her outside giving her positive experiences and it, and very gently introducing her to the concept of consequence and effect yeah, yeah. and they're difficult they're really difficult as parents and it's yet another thing that parents have to deal with and yet another thing we have to worry about on top of the e-numbers and the food packaging and the teeth brushing and the hair brushing and everything else but it's just about being conscientious and just about mindfulness in your own life really and if she can learn that from us as parents then hopefully she'll grow up with that mindset that I didn't grow up with I did not learn that from my parents I grew up in the 90s in the time of Pokemon cards and Game Boys like that was our life it was amazing um but we did not grow up in a conscientious way. Yeah, yeah. We've had to learn that as teenagers and into our 20s. So I hope that she can learn that from a really young age. For sure. For sure. Now, there are like 
three different ways I can pivot that conversation now because you touched on so many interesting points. <laughs> um, so maybe one thing uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention or not mention, but actually expand on is the importance of educating future generations and young people. And, and just an episode before this one, just the last episode, uh, we talked about a book, uh, a children's book, uh, um, that is aimed at explaining nature around us and, mm-hmm. you know, like, a, like kind of slip into negative, like that these there's less and less and we should do something about it. And I mm-hmm. think this is, extremely important um probably more like i'm i'm of the opinion and i'm 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 pretty sure that you share that opinion that the the of the all issues the education is the biggest one it is uh-huh. most important one because you can address something here and now quite often heavy handed you know you ban something or you but ultimately you you don't want to be in a situation when you need to ban something you want people to not do these things that are bad Mm-hmm. out of their uh, out of their ed- education and and i think that this is i don't want to put the mouth words in your mouth but this is what you're focusing on as well right to come out to young people to next generation mm-hmm. because this is probably the most important thing we can do in 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 this space absolutely i mean every time someone asks me about what's the most important thing i always come back to education and i'm not an educator i'm not trained as, as a teacher so how I can't... are you not an educator of oh. course you are <laughs> okay i'm not trained as an educator um i so I, I can never quite get my head around exactly what it is that's wrong because there obviously is something fundamentally wrong in the way that we educate kids whether that's um we look at societal problems or cultural problems things like ingrained sexism or ingrained racism or people growing up not really understanding where they fit within the natural world there is something fundamentally wrong and I I can't put my finger on exactly where it goes wrong because there are lots of great things about um, the education system in this country and in lots of other countries Uh, we have kids who are really good at maths and really good at reading and writing and all, all the rest of it we we have huge privileges in the western world in the education system that we have. So I don't want to sit there and hammer it and say that it's all wrong because it's obviously not. There's obviously great things come out of it. But there are some, there's a mismatch between what we're teaching kids and then how that follows through into their decision-making and their later life. And I, I can't figure out where that mismatch is happening. All I know is that it is. If we don't teach children about cause and effect we will never get a generation that is self-conscious when i was little i absolutely loved nature i loved wildlife they were concepts to me they weren't necessarily things that i actively thought i could go and look for i mean i grew up in leicestershire i was obviously surrounded by foxes and yet i can't remember consciously seeing a fox until i was a teenager so the same goes with hedgehogs. Like I, I remember, I think we pulled a hedgehog out of a fence one day because it got stuck and we had to feed it through and then marched with it up to the vets. It was all very cute. But they, I can remember, were like proper, wow, oh my goodness, an actual wild animal situations. And this was from someone who said growing up that they love wildlife, but I never actively went out and looked for it. I remember, I, I, I knew basic bird names, but not, lots of them 
But I think this goes so much further than identification. And that's what worries me about like a GCSE in natural history. There seems to be a lot of focus on identifying house sparrows and tree sparrows. I'm not quite sure how much that actually helps anyone, but okay. Um, That's a different conversation. I can't quite get my head around exactly what it is that's going wrong. I love that there are loads more kids now getting really angry about things. I love that there are loads more kids now standing up for wildlife and standing up for nature. But how much does that actually then go through into, I'm not going to buy a plastic bottle filled with my favourite fizzy drink. I'm not going to buy that packet of sweets because they've got palm oil in them and because they're in a plastic wrapper. Um, I'm not going to ask for really expensive consumerism toys for Christmas. Um, I don't know how much that actually sinks in. And I think that's what's missing. Is I'm not, I'm not going to fall to peer pressure of having a new phone every year. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of thing. And I, I can't help but feel like we teach kids that there's some higher power that's got this, that deep down the government's on our side and the corporations are really good in reality and someone bigger than you is dealing with this, almost like this godlike religious figure is on top of the world. So whilst it's not great now, it's okay because the adults are dealing with it. And then what you get told as an adult is it's all about personal action. It's all about personal action. Don't blame the government. Don't blame the corporations. It's all about you becoming vegan and going to thrift shops and never buying anything again and never never holding the government to account. And those two narratives are completely polar opposite because you tell children that it's someone else's problem and you tell adults that it's all their problem. And you can't join those two things up. They don't, those two narratives are completely polar opposite. And then I go, it's no wonder that people wandering around in circles feeling really confused and guilty and disempowered because you're not taught as a kid how to hold people higher up than you to account. But as an adult, you're not expected to because it's all about your personal decision not to eat a beef burger and not to drive your car and you should pay £400 for a train ticket because it's environmentally friendly, even if it's going to bankrupt you. So there's all this guilt narrative. There's all this uh, disempowerment narrative. And it's, it's completely bonkers. It doesn't make any sense. And you sit and think about it and you get confused and you get a headache. And then you end up having a gin and tonic, which probably has plastic somewhere in its blooming supply chain. <laughs> for sure. So oh, you just can't win. That's very insightful. That is very insightful. I, I actually never thought about it. I never heard anyone um, saying that this this disconnect. And on top of that, we all know that there is this moment when you think you're a kid and, mm. and, and all of a sudden someone in the shop tells you like, Mr. or Miss, and you're like, whoa, what the hell? Am, yeah, I, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I adult now? <laughs> is it now? <laughs> it's like this shock. That, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> And uh, yes, that's 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 absolutely right. Um, so so what's your what's your view on the how how Im- how important it is on the scale of actions this this minimizing personal impact uh, on a planet? How where where would you where would you place that? So I've gone on a bit of a journey with this recently, actually. Oh, lovely. Um, and I keep changing my mind about it. So it's not going to be a very short, concise answer, as you've probably got used to in the past half an hour. No, no, that's great. Um, <laughs> that's great. That's what I'm, uh, you know, I, I always love when I hit like something when you can oh, share our, your journey with us. Well, 
I was literally just thinking about this. I've just edited an article for a magazine on it and I was reading it and parts of it, whilst I really agree with it, were making me a bit cross actually. And I was going, no, you fundamentally missed a point. I do believe in personal action. I worked with the Wildlife Trusts um, six years ago, set up six years ago, seven years ago, set up a campaign called 30 Days Wild. And that is all about personal action. Do something wild every day for 30 days. And it is a hugely successful wildlife campaign one of the most successful in the country at the moment it's incredible and I'm so proud of my involvement in that I have a book off the back of it called 365 days wild which a huge amount of that is about personal action and mm-hmm. personal we should, we should have mentioned that book already earlier where, yeah, people, where people can buy the book <laughs> you have this overwhelming urge to say amazon <laughs> it's just <laughs> terrible um <laughs> No, your local independent bookshop um, okay. is the best place to buy it from. But you can get it from like Wildlife Trust websites and stuff like that as well. Okay, good. Um, sorry sorry, sorry to cut you over, but I just want to plug your book for a short moment. <laughs> no, that's fine. And, and that is all about personal action as well um, and personal experience. So in one respect, I was very much in that camp of personal action. And I do still believe in it. I do still believe that we can all make individual decisions to behave in certain ways and adopt certain lifestyles. And that certainly living in the Western world, we we have the privilege to be able to make those decisions. These are not decisions that are going to fundamentally bankrupt huge parts of society, um, especially actually, ironically, after a global pandemic, we actually have more flexibility in making choices about how we travel and where we travel to and everything that's associated with that. Shopping local is something I really took up strongly in uh, during COVID because I didn't want to go to the big supermarkets. I actually really enjoyed going to my little shop right. and helping them there do their deliveries. And it was really sweet. And I still do it because I, I like it. This is um, the saying that the change won't happen unless it, you're forced to change. Yeah. And this is a little bit like that, right? Exactly. And it kind of, it, whilst it was a terrible situation, it still is. There, there were and are opportunities coming out of it. It shouldn't just be about building back better and all the rest of it whatever slogan we want to attach to it it should be about a genuine mindset shift however and this is a real difficult one for me I also don't really believe I'm I'm quite libertarian in that I don't believe in telling people what to do and forcing changes on people that impact on their own lives and expecting them to be able to do it um i recognize that everybody is in individual situations that they have individual things going on in their lives and what matters to me might not matter to them and so the other the other side of this is this by pushing it onto individuals and by saying it's your choice how you live you take away all the responsibility from government and you take away all the responsibility from the big corporations who are the ones that are responsible for 70 odd percent of carbon emissions and habitat destruction etc ultimately farmer sam digging up a pond in the corner of his field to turn it over to wheat production is not fundamentally destroying the world it is the mass systematic destruction of habitat that is destroying the world and i i, I dislike the narrative that pushes that responsibility onto farmer sam and labels Farmer Sam as a fundamentally bad human being because he dug his farmland pond up. Even though he has his own family to feed, he has his own responsibilities, 
Um, he has his own targets. He's got the government telling him to do all of these contradictory things. But we can sit there in our ivory towers demanding a pint of milk for 40p. And also you're not allowed to dig your pond up. So I think the problem with that personal action is that people really don't understand the impacts of their personal actions, no matter what they choose. And if we don't hold the corporations to account and we don't hold the government to account, then you're not going to fundamentally tackle the cause of the issue. So it, it really is a double-edged sword. I do believe in making personal decisions that are good for the environment. Um, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. <gasps> I know, oh, it's horrible. But I shop local. Um, I do agree with 80% of the vegan argument. So I operate now. I eat far more plant-based foods. Um, I buy local. I buy reusable. Um, I to the point where our milk comes from the next island. Um, can't get a much more lower carbon. My carbon footprint on my milk is probably significantly lower than someone getting almond milk from a different country. Um, For sure. Yeah, it's sure. I, it's that kind of seasonal local attitude that I try to adopt. And again, I recognise that I'm in a situation where I can afford to do that, um, and not everybody is. But it's that that's the issue. And I don't want to be labeled as being a fundamentally bad person because I have made a conscious decision not to be vegan. Uh, I, I like, I like me. I like eating that. I know that that's not sustainable like for steak. me. I know. I, I, I know that it's, I know that I should feel really guilty about that. And I have a huge amount of respect for people who can make those decisions, but I make those decisions in other places. Um, I bought new clothes in a sale for the first time in over a year the other day, because I've made a decision that I'm going to try not to buy new clothes. The irony was it was a local shop that was shutting down and they needed that income. So made an ethics decision that actually it was better to support the shop in their final flurry than it was for me to sit there being all principled again in my ivory tower. So to me, ethics are flexible, values are flexible, but if you just rely on those to save the planet, we're not gonna get anywhere. They have to go hand in hand. I think shouting at Twitches, for example, for driving 300 miles twice a year to see a bird is such a drop in the ocean. If you compare it to say football fans who drive literally around the country for eight months of the year following their football team, and that is incomparable to mass habitat destruction in South America. Yeah. So it is all on a sliding scale. I do believe in personal action and I do believe that we can all make better decisions, but ultimately those better decisions come with the, the brands that we choose to support, how we hold people to account and the kind of things we invest in. Changing your pension or your energy provider is probably going to make far more of a difference than saying, oh, I'm not going to eat chicken twice a week. It's, it's all to do with what you can do and who is actually responsible for the problem. And we see people getting nailed all the time on social media for their personal decisions. And I always just think, you know nothing about that person. How dare you nail them when you know nothing I am so conscious on social media that you never know what's going on with someone. They might be going through something at home. They might have a serious mental health problem. And just having a go at someone for expressing themselves on a 
democratic platform to me is just like the lowest form of intimidation and bullying. And I see that happening on both sides. I see that happening on the anti-environmental side and I see that happening all the time on the pro-environmental side. And from people who claim to be open-minded and people who claim to be terribly well-worlded, that to me is unacceptable. Mm, yeah. I, I also noticed this this uh, trend, which is, you know, probably we all guilty a little bit of that. Um, but the trend is like, you pick something that is wrong or someone's done something that I don't like yeah. and and tweet about it and retweet it. It's like, look at this. Uh-huh. And then it's like... I, <laughs> You know, like leave leave them alone, right? It's like almost some some accounts are just almost dedicated to searching. Someone done something wrong, and I'm now I'm gonna show everybody like this should be done this way. I was like, come on, stop being that judgmental. Like, yeah, you know why you why you like you said you don't even know you you don't even know who like is this 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 person's house is this this person's dog do you, like what do you yeah. know like it, it, it's 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 terrible and since we on this subject of social media and you train in <laughs> social media um i want to back out a little bit but then uh, that i i see the next <laughs> way forward from it so i'm i back out a little bit where we where you talk about uh whether you take positive stories or negative story depending who you talk to Uh-huh. Now on plat on social media platforms, you don't really know who you talk yeah. to. So how 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 would you what would be your advice um you know to me and other people who want to use uh-huh. social media platforms? How to balance you know your negative part of the story? not negative in you know purely because that negative part of the story is always the background is like you want to showcase something and maybe uh uh-huh you know, make people jump to action, some sort of an action. Uh-huh. And on the other hand, with all the positive, since you don't know who you talk to, or is it like you said, it's a democratic wide platform, you're basically shooting this out in the world. And <laughs> No, so it, again, it's a really tricky one. The first thing I always do on social media is follow people who don't necessarily think the same as you, because you'll always learn something and you'll learn something you weren't expecting. And That to me is the first point. If someone comes at me and argues with me, I mean, I, I've got shouted at by the shooting industry before and it was fundamental misunderstanding. That was all it was. I was like, I, I feel we're on completely different stories here, let alone different pages in the story. Um, and that's, what, that's all it was. It, it, it wasn't a shouty reason, but I could understand why there was a quite a defensive reaction. So the way I dealt with that was to follow them and say, okay, I am happy to learn from you. I don't have to engage with you. I don't have to talk to you, but let I will follow you and I will consciously put myself into your space to learn about what you think. So I think the first thing on social media that can really help you if you can do it in a really open-minded way is consciously following people who you might not expect to like or agree with and learning their perspectives is really, really useful. Um, And it can be very mindful as well, actually, that self-reflection of understanding why your opinion might not resonate with someone else is really, really good. As a communicator, I find it hugely helpful because it's a, from a professional perspective, understanding why someone else might not like what I'm saying is a huge part of what I have to do. If I can't do that, I'm bad at my job. So I would always say to people, do that for starters. 
um, in terms of what you're sharing, you have to think about the kind of person that you are and the kind of message that you're putting out to the world. And that's something that I'm always really surprised at on social media is when I meet someone, they're completely different to the person that they're portraying. And I think, are you, are you proud of that person? Do you, are, are you proud of the, the position you're putting out? Are you, are you proud of the person that you're expected to be? Um, is this, is, this a, is this persona someone you would like? Is this persona someone you would follow? And if the answer is no, <laughs> I don't want to stop tweeting like that then. You do something um, wrong. Yeah, there's something wrong. Uh, I, I know people who I'm sure are really good people, but all they do on social media is hammer other people. And the irony is what they're saying is true. I don't question or doubt a single word of what they're saying, and I understand why they're saying it. But, oh, my gosh, they're so annoying that they're on mute with every single person that I know. <laughs> oh my God. It's all very well, but if everybody's muted, you sweetheart, nobody's listening. And understanding that sometimes your own methods may not be right, even mm. if they are worthy, even if they are true. I don't really believe in truth and falseness, to be fair. But even if even if they are good, well intentioned, if you're not reaching anybody because you are so negative, and because all you do is put people down that's no good for anybody all you're doing is bringing yourself down because when you tweet you'll feel angry and then when you look back and you'll see you haven't got any engagements you'll be upset and those are not emotions I want in my life I want to live a happy positive life that makes a positive difference for other people so I always think is the kind of person that you're putting forward on social media actually a reflection of your true character if it's not hit pause take a break start again nothing wrong with that um go go outside spend some time looking at some trees or something just take a break and you can still share the negative stuff I do still share negative stuff but I'm a big one in not giving my opinion on something if I don't really understand the issues so I'll retweet stuff and I will share things for other people but I don't always believe that I have to put my own spin on it um, I think there are far too many narcissists on Twitter who jump on bandwagons just because, and they make it about them. This issue has nothing to do with them, but I think this, well, well done you, does anybody care type thing. Um, <laughs> and it's that, I, I, I really try and avoid that. I, I only get involved in conversations um, if I really understand what I'm talking about, if I've got some expert opinion backing me up. And I also think there's far too many people who for some unknown reason have been trained that they, they can't say, I don't know. Someone what? asked, they asked it's, me something. It's okay um, to say, I don't know. Someone asked me something the other day on Twitch and they said, well, what's your opinion? Based on what you've said, what's your opinion on this? And I went, I don't know because I don't have enough information on that. And they were shocked because there's this constant view that you have to constantly give every opinion you might hold on every issue on social media. Otherwise, you're not being a good tweeter and you don't have to. You can genuinely still go to the pub and have a conversation with your friend you don't have to share it on twitter and you can and that's fine as well but if you get into that negative cycle where all you're being is cynical and angry you will find you get less followers the algorithms are set up like that quite often um, so the less engagement you get the less engagement you will get and then you end up in a negative cycle that's going to really badly affect your mental health so it's always about trying to find 
the good and the bad. And I've only ever really had positive experiences on social media, which is really unusual for my age. I know so many people who've had to take breaks and who've had to protect themselves. And I never have, but it's because I know how to play the algorithms. I know how to play the stories. I know how to follow people who, even if I don't agree with them, will at least make me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> We've, We've lost our sense of humor in the world. I agree. I agree. Oh. That's, that's one of the things is everything is so freaking serious. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? Oh, yes. everyone is just so angry and down all the time. You and can't even make a joke. People no. will unfollow you and get angry at you. It's like, come on, relax. This isn't a joking matter. And you're like, yeah, but it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit lol, isn't it? Um, <laughs> And mm. we have lost that sense of humor, mm, uh, especially on social media. You're not allowed to make jokes anymore because someone will, someone who is on your bloody side, someone who you agree with, someone whose values match your own will shout at you for smiling. Yeah. And that is a sad state of the world where people I, I, I think hold off this, smiling. I think there's this uh, non-verbal aspect that is sorely missing on social media. Uh, If you're talking face to face, you can see the facial expression you can see the body language is like oh i don't think it's big issue huh and it's like <laughs> oh how do like because you know like um it's it depends like in what voice someone is reading your tweets yeah and this is it like are are you reading my tweets in the angry voice that yeah. i'm angry at you are you reading my tweets that, like my you know like a funny jolly voice yeah <laughs> and, you and you just don't know and then depending on the on the mood you're in you're oh, yeah. projecting that mood into other people text because that's all you see it's like oh how do you how do you get it? and and i think this is where where it comes from yeah absolutely it's people can't take a step back and obviously <laughs> you do have to be careful what you tweet but i mean i i will be honest i basically didn't get a job once um Not because of anything I tweeted. This was the irony. I really had to dig into it and find out what had gone on. And I knew someone behind the scenes. And I was like, what happened? Because this doesn't make any sense. Because I didn't get the job because I got accused of being too political on social media. Oh. And I was like, I am not political on social media. Most people would not know who I vote for. Um, I don't get involved around election times or anything like that. Like, no one actually knows my politics. I'm very careful to hide that. I, I don't. I don't believe it's anyone else's business, like what, how I vote. Um, I'm all about policies. So I see a policy that I think is absolutely outstanding. I say, yes, that is a great policy, but I don't get into party politics. I didn't get a job. And I was thinking, this is really bizarre. Like, why? And it turned out that basically this like Cambridge Analytica company had been employed to analyze my followers. Uh. Not who I was following, but my who? followers. Uh-huh. And I was labeled as because all these people follow you, you must think like this. And that is too radical for what we want. And I was like, wow, that's brutal. Like that is absolutely brutal and really creepy. And it's mm. not my fault they follow me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not putting tweets yeah. out every five minutes saying, follow me. If you're a good <laughs> person, they should unfollow you. Exactly. I was like, oh, God, 
what did I do? And the irony is like, I still don't know like how I was too radical. I still don't know exactly what the issue mm-hmm. was. I just know there was an issue with my followers uh, and that I was considered too radical in a certain area. I don't know what the area uh, was. You'll see, I'm but, thinking about this podcast. I have a, such a radical person on the podcast. I know. People will get angry at me for sure. <laughs> People shout at you and send you hate mail. And it's just, <laughs> I had hate mail once. I've only ever had hate mail once uh-huh. in my life. And that was for an article I wrote for Birdwatch. Uh-huh. And it, it was tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> it really was tongue-in-cheek. Um, it's like when you write a column, it, it's a caricature. It's not necessarily how you would describe it in real life. It's meant to be funny. Yeah. It's meant to be extreme. That's why columnists are successful. Jeremy Clarkson does not mm-hmm. always think like that, but it's yeah. meant to be yeah. an extreme yeah. version, an exaggerated yeah. version of your own opinion. And people get really angry about them as a consequence because they take them up absolute face value. And I got hate mail over an article I wrote about um, wildlife photographers just because I'd had like one really bad experience with wildlife photographers where their field craft was awful. Mm -hmm. And it was a really big topic at the time. So I wrote Mm -hmm. my column on it. And Mm -hmm. someone wrote into Birdwatch and said that they had never been so offended by anything they'd ever read anywhere. (laughs) 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 <laughs> oh, and they said God. do you want to respond and i was like i don't know how to respond to <laughs> like i'm sorry you have a very low bar of being offended <laughs> mate <laughs> like, thank god don't start reading the newspapers <laughs> do you read anything else oh god oh it was awful but it's also you get toughened up to it really quickly as when mm-hmm. people actually are that extreme in their reaction to you Yeah. And you know it's unfounded and you know that you have got a sense of humor throughout it. You just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. So that that would be my thing on social media. Going back to your original question like 10 minutes ago is having a sense of humor is everything. And we have forgotten that in society. We can have a laugh. We can talk to people who do not agree with us and it's fine. Like you can respectfully disagree with someone. And if you can't, that's fine. Just block them. It's not mm. difficult. If you want to be really well open-minded follow them you might learn something and there are so many ways that we can have better conversations on social media and, and also you don't have to engage you don't have to respond oh. to everything right you don't you don't need to, you don't need to have an answer to everything like you don't need to see a photo and be offended the whole time <laughs> and this is what happens is everyone's just so offended all the time and mm. i just think god oh, go Uh, that goes to What your point doing? about lack of sense of humor. That's yeah. that's exactly it. You you almost answer my my next question because I I I would inquire. You know how you how would you how you deal with uh, blatant disinformation in mm. on like you, you know because and I'm not talking about from the because there's kind of like there are just regular folks on twitter or facebook or whatever right they just enjoy experience and then like you said don't engage right if you're positioning yourself as a communicator as an educator mm-hmm. as some right then it, it it's like your responsibility is a little bit more i think yeah and then we see that and i'm sure you know these these people who are high profile personalities and sometimes they're just like Dude, that is not true. Everybody knows that is not true. Mm-hmm. Everyone, like how to de- it's it's sometimes it's hard to not respond. Then on the other hand, if that person has like a, you know, half a million followers, there's like ah, <laughs> uh, you know, probably it's tough sometimes. 
It, it is really tough. So the thing that I always remember is social media is fueled by outrage. There are legitimate reporting functions that you can use. So the first thing I do if I see disinformation is I report it, no matter what the platform. Um, on Instagram, I get targeted continually um, with diet fad plans um, that claim that banana smoothies will make me lose 20 pounds in five days. Wow. They won't. Not, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Um, they <laughs> won't. It's, it, it is genuine disinformation. So mm. I report it straight away. Um, I don't engage all the time with it. Occasionally, if I'm a bit angry, I'm having a bad day, I might write a little comment underneath like, this is just crap. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the big thing is the reporting function. If you see something that is genuinely, not someone's opinion, like people's opinions can be nuanced, but if you see someone sharing something that is categorically wrong, report it. First things first. Second thing is do not share it. Like I have seen campaigns, anti-environmental campaigns, literally go viral because they have been shared by pro-environmental campaigners. Oh, my God. Preach. That's it. it. Yep. Like, you've just got them another 3,000 followers. You just got them a ton of engagement oh, for something yeah. that you would rather see sink to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. And you just retweeted and subtweeted yeah. and you responded and all your followers now yes. see that. And then these people, like we said, lurking around. Oh, that, mm-hmm. that's actually interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is the thing is the moment you engage, the moment Twitter then says, well, that's an engaging tweet. So I'm going to push it up because then it will show it to more people. That is how these algorithms work. The more you engage, the more angry people get and the more Twitter loves it because Twitter wants you to spend your, Twitter does not care about your opinion. Twitter does not care what you think. Twitter cares about the amount of time you spend on their platform because they can then sell their platform to advertisers claiming that people who sit on Twitter Mm. uh, spend half an hour on Twitter being outraged. So if you put your trainer (laughs) advert in the middle of it, you're gonna sell more Mm. trainers. This is all one big fix. So this sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory, but it is actually true. Like people think that social media is funded by some millionaire behind the scenes who is philanthropic and doing it for a good reason. It's not. It's all funded by advertising. So the more time you spend on a platform being outraged, the more money someone is making off your outrage and the more outraged you will get. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is report Take a screenshot. If you if you insist on sharing it, screenshot it, snip it out, crop it out, and share that. Never share their handle. Never share the actual tweet. And don't feel like you have to write underneath everyone telling them that they're wrong. Yeah, It won't happen. If you want to share the account, take the screenshot and say, if you could all go on and report this, that would be great. But please do not engage with the actual content because it will promote it through Twitter. Yeah or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And that is a serious issue that people do not understand. I have literally seen campaigns go viral because pro-environmentalists have not been able to contain their outrage. And the irony is these campaigns are always faceless. We don't know who's running them. Uh, There's no accountability. They're not actual charities. It's not like you can go and report them to the Charities Commission. This is just a few angry people who've set up a Twitter account with the purpose quite often of naming and shaming someone with the purpose of pushing forward a very narrow-minded agenda. And all you're doing is giving them airtime. Yeah, yeah. Especially are even constructed that way. To, absolutely. To say something absolutely, stupidly outrageous. 
and count on this that people where there is mm-hmm. a group of people who's like this is like and then we'll so this is this is exploited by these people absolutely they're doing it on purpose but fundamentally they're cleverer than the rest of us because they know how to do this and that's where we just if we can control our outrage if we can control our clicks and we can control our need to retaliate to everything all of the time you will find the world a better place. Matt Hancock does a tweet and it's always hilarious because every single comment underneath that tweet will be negative, will be someone having to go at his dancing skills or someone having to go at this policy or someone saying he's incompetent. There'll be thousands of people. But guess what? He's still there plugging away, like doing whatever it is that he's doing because it doesn't actually fundamentally change anything. You'll need to express that on social media someone isn't going to suddenly roll over the next day, wake up in bed and go, oh my God, Mary Jane from Suffolk was right in what she tweeted to me last night. And I'm going to suddenly change my entire way of being because she told me that. (laughs) And I've never thought about it like that before. It's not how people work, but it is how social media works because it's designed to work like that. That's the point. I I, I heard an expression uh, to describe something pointless, which is like, it's like telling someone on Twitter that they're wrong. Yeah. It's just not worth it. It's never worth it. It's never... I can't think of a single situation that I've got myself into on Twitter where I've responded to something and then thought why yeah and someone said like yeah you're right actually yeah <laughs> okay, actually, right. sorry, I've <laughs> completely changed my entire being and my entire world just because you said that and i don't think people get this especially when people have a cause especially when people are really outraged by something they can't control that outrage and i just think just pick the phone up phone your friend and shout at your friend fine yeah you want to do yeah. that fine you want to go into the next room and rant to your partner fine you want to go to the pub and Shout at someone. Fine. They, they are all perfectly acceptable social outputs for the way you're feeling right now. But just going on and sharing something and saying, I am outraged by this, it doesn't actually yeah. achieve anything. And all you actually do is promote the other side of the argument. People do it all the time with products like brands are actively creating bad adverts so that people will share them saying that is a bad advert. It is designed specific you would never see that advert on so on television you would never see that advert in a newspaper because you can't share it but you will always see those adverts on social media because they thrive off outrage exactly like you said these 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 people are way smarter than they appear Mm -hmm. to be and they're way richer because they know how to exploit (laughs) exactly so listen before we wrap this up i just want your your comments on one other thing that kind of connects to this misinformation uh, mm-hmm. although uh, it's hard to say it's 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 purposeful but you know what what really gets me and i'm curious your your view on this is um well-meaning conservation organizations mm-hmm. who are cater to certain audience which is a their following base, their uh-huh. their contributors, not contributors, but their donors, their right NGOs. Yeah. And so they kind of put themselves in a situation where they cannot say how the things are because a lot of their base, their target audience, will uh-huh. feel disfranchised. They're not going to contribute to them anymore, and so on uh-huh. and so forth. And and an example uh, I remember was. 
uh, Irish Wildlife Trust, where they said that um, wildcats used to be in Ireland, that used mm-hmm. to be part of an uh, assemblage of animals in Ireland, and they would be in favor of introducing wildcats. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, the birder community. Oh my God. Is this the official position of Irish Wildlife Trust? I'm not uh-huh. going to support you anymore. Like, oh, more goddamn cats. It's like, it, it just exploded. Yeah. And, you know, I understand that they, well, I give example of Irish Wildlife Trust, but there's a lot of organizations like that, right? There's an organization that uh, promotes reintroduction of a native woodland. Mm-hmm. And they're absolutely not going to say anything about controlling deer population because yep. the, the base, the audience are, are people who love nature. They're all fluffy. They're all vegans mm-hmm. in, in air quotes, right? And so on. So obviously they're not going to say like, hey, well, you know, we actually have too many deer and we need to do something. Do something. And, and that, that kind of gets me yeah. because I feel like they... Sh- you know, their responsibility is to be honest and, and uh-huh. honestly, truthfully present the situation. But then on the other hand, I understand like, well, y- you know, we are depend on the money that comes in from donations from this. And this is a very slippery slope where yeah. you can quickly slip into actively active disinformation or uh-huh. just blatantly, you know, not telling about important issues because you were afraid of your 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 people do you see that do you have any comments on that oh gosh yeah i could go for an entire hour on this one um to me it all comes down to being authentic if you are a charity you have a charitable objective and it is your legal responsibility to be authentic in that charitable objective obviously you might operate on a membership model and that membership model will involve a range of people all making subs an annual donation a monthly donation whatever Depending on the size of the charity, the size of those uh, membership uh, subscriptions can be absolutely enormous. That can make up a huge part of your income or it can make up a tiny part of your income if actually you get more money from government grants, from HLF, from anyone else, uh, independent funders, philanthropists, etc. So from my perspective, and this sounds awful, but different people do have different weights within a charity. If you're talking about Um, a legator who's going to leave you half a million pounds to buy a nature reserve or something that person's opinion has more weight unfortunately because it's not a democracy charities are not democracies they do not operate on votes all the time it's not that sort of thing there is an elected board of trustees you get to elect those trustees and that's fine but you do not get to vote on every single individual policy within that organization so i'd say this is a double-edged sword again if you are going to support a charity know why you're supporting them and know what they actually do. I think that a lot of people who love birds or love wildlife choose to support a charity because they think that they should and then they find out what they actually do is not what they thought. A classic one is Songbird Survival. Really positive title. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone wants songbirds to survive. Hallelujah. Actually, very in favour of controls of predatory bird species, so birds of prey, etc. Oh, um yeah (laughs) so suddenly you think you like songbirds but do you like songbirds so much that you like them at the expense of sparrowhawks and it's really important if you're going to invest in a charity if you're going to join them if you're going to put your money into them that you have to know exactly what it is that they do and what fundamentally they exist for 
then you're onto the charity where it's their responsibility to tell you very authentically, very honestly, and very transparently what they do and how they're managed. And if you are not convinced by that, do not give them money. Very simply, that is your decision as an individual consumer or supporter where you put your money. I have resigned charities before um, because I invested in them for a year. I really liked one of their campaigns. And then when it's come down to it, actually, I'm, I'm not that bothered anymore. So I'm going to withdraw my membership. Charities lose members all the time for a variety of reasons, um, mostly financial. So I have £100 that I can give to charity this year. I can support three charities being a member at 35 quid a year or whatever. Which three charities are they going to be? Um, adoption models are the same. Um, sponsorship models are the same. So adopting guide dogs, um, adopting polar bears, whatever it is that you want to adopt, adopt a tree. Um when you get into those, those are even more fraught because you quite often pay a one-off subscription. The charity will come back and ask you for more money and you'll say, well, actually, no, I've got I've got my cuddly toy and I've got my certificate and that's actually all I kind of wanted. Um, so different models operate in different ways. It depends on how transactional the model is. Um, depends on how much of a threat it is that your members might resign. Um, when I worked for a previous employer, we had a big issue around grey squirrels because um, an accidental media spin, and it was accidental, the journalist did not think it was going to get taken the way it got taken. Oh, my goodness, it was awful. Um, a few partners were culling grey squirrels for very good reasons. And personally, I'm not against culling grey squirrels, but the influx of complaints that we got literally wiped out our entire comms team for a week. <laughs> it was awful. We were getting like hate mail through all of our social media channels. We were getting constant phone calls, people screaming at us, personal threats, et cetera, et cetera. People trying to find out what your name is because people were so outraged. And there's this constant threat of, I'm going to resign your charity. Go on then. Let's actually look at the membership. You're not a member. And so a lot of people <laughs> will say they're going to resign and they will go on social media. They'll go on Facebook, they'll go on whatever. And they'll say, I'm a member of yours and have been for 10 years. I'm going to resign. They're not even a member. They're just saying it. They're saying it because they want a financial leverage that makes you doubt your position on something. Any authentic charity will not bow down to pressure, however much their trustees, their directors, their CEO may feel that a situation is right or wrong, will not be forced into changing their positions on something if it is not legally tenable. Classic one is the National Trust and fox hunting. Personally, I'm against fox hunting. That's okay. My personal opinion, I'm allowed to be against fox hunting. Personally, I don't like it. I don't think any, I don't understand what's in it for anybody. But again, it's my personal opinion. I recognize that the National Trust is in a very difficult legal position with banning fox hunting on some of their estates. However much I may not like that, however much I may want to sign the thing saying you need to ban fox hunting however much i want to get involved and sometimes i'm shouting at them i recognize it's not that simple mm -hmm. because there is a legal responsibility of the national trust that is in their uh conditions for owning a property that says you will continue to allow this they are their hands are legally tied whether you agree with that or not and that is a really big issue that people think that sheer people power and democracy can change charitable objectives. They can sometimes. Sometimes that is the right thing to do. A lot of the time it's categorically not 
the right thing and you I always think is there not a bigger issue that can we we can talk about like in reality does this really matter is if we're going to put our campaigning power into something is this really what we want to put our campaigning power into it's not a massive environmental issue in reality the impact of fox hunting on fox populations is more of an animal welfare issue than it is an environmental or conservation issue um so it and the national trust is not an animal welfare organization so whilst lots of people who support the national trust may call themselves animal activists or animal welfare um supporters that's not what the National Trust is there for. And so they can get really angry about that and be as angry as they like about it. But fundamentally, that anger isn't really going to change much. Mm. Um, if there are examples of illegal fox hunting, then the National Trust can do something. If that trail hunting, as it is now, tips over into something that is illegal, the National Trust can push back and has a ground to push back on because an illegal activity has taken place on one of their properties fine but where things are legal and above board and written into constitutions that is incredibly difficult to challenge and i think charities do back down too quickly the bto are amazing actually and not backing down the bto say we are here for science we will take money off any organization or anyone who wants to find out legitimately fairly and accurately about something and the bto do that very proudly because they say that they'd rather they did the good science than they took it elsewhere and got the bad science. And loads of birders I know criticize the BTO for that and say, but you say you're looking out for birds, but you're accepting money off BP. How can you say that? And the BTO say, well, because we are the credible organization and they stand their ground. And I have a huge amount of respect for charities that do stand their ground. You, you exist for a reason. If you are doing conservation, your conservation should be based on science not based on opinion and science is hugely subjective science is fraught with subjective opinions but it is the best we've got so it should not be based on mary jones or whatever she was called from suffolk saying she disagrees with what you say on twitter and i so i'm a big believer in charities need to be authentic they need to stand their ground and they need to be aware of the amount of time and energy they put and their resources, the paid resources, paid people's time into fighting battles that are not to do with them. Mm -hmm. If a load of birders want to be offended at the concept that wild cats might on occasion impact on bird populations, that is on the birder to decide whether they choose to support that charity. In reality, I doubt you would get enough membership resignations to long-term financially impact on the charity. I might be wrong, only they can make that decision. If that's the case, they need to stop marketing the charity to people who don't understand what they do. If you end up with a membership base that fundamentally doesn't understand what you do, you've done something wrong in your marketing. Yeah. And I, that is a big issue, I think, for like RSPB and Wildlife Trust especially. They're ending up with a hell of a lot of wildlife, uh, with animal welfare people yeah. thinking that's what they do and it's not that is not conservation conservation involves sometimes controlling animal populations it involves guns there are so many rangers for the rspb and the wildlife trust who are trained to handle firearms and if you don't like that you and you really don't like it it's up to you where you spend your 30 quid yeah yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. That's 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 a, that's a very and you. I like your point about like the financial leverage. Like, like yeah. I'm gonna I'm going to withdraw my thirty quid a year from your. 
Um, you're right, and and that's I would I would summarize that as truth will set you free. So it's like this yeah, is, this is what we do. You're honest about it, and like if you don't like, um, then you know maybe you should reconsider. Yeah, truly absolutely. Reconsider your membership because this is what we do, and if you don't like it, um, yeah. So 100%. It's, it's your money. You choose where you put it. You don't have to make a fuss about it on social media. You don't have to keep hammering them. You, sometimes you can recognize that in, in any good relationship, sometimes you recognize that you have personal differences and you've got to go your separate ways type thing. That's fine. It's not something that we, it, it's not a thing we've never heard of. We can't pretend that we're shocked by this. This happens all the time in life. And I would always just say to anyone, if you're about to support a charity, don't just do it because you clicked on an ad on Facebook because that ad on Facebook will not give you everything you need to know. And there are different kinds of memberships. Uh, so WWT, hugely transactional. If you want to go and support Wildfire and Wetland Trust, you're essentially paying to get into their sites. But, and that's fair, that's completely fine. That's how their financial model works. But you are also supporting incredible conservation. I love WWT and I don't think they get anywhere near the airtime they should because they do some amazing stuff. Um, and who doesn't love ducks and ponds? Essentially, WWT, Wildfowl and Wetlands, they do ducks and ponds. It's great. Yeah. And um, <laughs> go, go, it. people, they, the people who are listening to me watching this, go and they, give them they a know their USB. It's great. Yeah. Um, and you have to be really clear on what you're supporting and why you're doing it. Don't just throw your money at a charity because you, you think you should. And that is a big issue for animal welfare versus conservation. Loads of people think, oh, the wild, wildlife trusts, God, must love deer. Yeah. And we do. We do love deer. Like lots of people love deer. Everyone loves deer, but in the right places. Yeah. And, and also trust those people. Uh, yeah. they're, they're professionals. And, you know, maybe you're not always right. Yes. <laughs> right. You're, you, you decided to support this charity. They're professionals trust what they do and maybe dig deeper and maybe it turns out that they're right not you right that's another approach yeah. uh lucy that was fantastic conversation uh i learned a lot i'm sure that viewers and listeners learned a lot as well uh some some excellent points um never heard before on this podcast so i appreciate that and um before we wrap this up any final words of wisdom uh to our viewers and listeners oh just if you're stressed go outside do it the way that suits you if you can't dictate an enjoyment of the natural world and say that you're, you're always right and everyone else's is wrong, everyone gets something different out of it. So the whole point of this podcast is outdoors. So go outdoors and enjoy it however you think is best because ultimately we're all on the same side. We want more outdoors. Yeah, And that's good. We're all on the same side. Lucy, yeah. thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That was great.